This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Because of the wild, I can see the who for you on this Valentine's Day, our gift to you, our producers, Paul Brennan, maybe his gift to everybody for Valentine's Day. Hey, but our next guest talks about we have seen this before. And so we want to kind of dig into that a little bit. Steve Blitz is back with us, chief U.S. economist at T.S. Lombard. He's in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in New York. Happy New Year. We realize we haven't seen each other in a while. Happy New Year and happy Valentine's Day. Thank you. Same to you. Deja vu? We've seen this before? Are you talking about the economy or what? Well, let's talk about inflation. And I think that, yeah, it is a um, – we have seen this before in two ways. The January effect. We had the January effect last year where we had some one-offs. Was like, it last year or 2016? Oh, you're talking about inflation. Yeah. Inflation, yeah. So 20, 27, January 2017, we had a big spike. Everybody said, oh, here comes inflation. Then you looked and it was apparel. And then apparel ended up being down year over year. And then sure enough, this year we see a big spike. We see apparel at 1.7%. So a lot of this is going to get reversed. So we've seen that part before. But there's another part that we've seen before, and that is just the normal cyclical rise in inflation. So the reversal of the January effect that we got last year will occur this year because we're not going to get a 30% increase in apparel. But it's not going to be quite. Let me back you up. Explain the apparel uh, pricing. I just don't get it. I don't understand what drove this. Uh, I think a lot of manufacturers just simply – have one-year price increases that they put in, and for whatever reason, the seasonal adjustment process at uh, the BLS doesn't fully um, um, Yeah, because if it happens every January, you would think that they would factor that in. Yeah. I mean, there's, look, there's a lot of manufacturers who put in an annual increase in price, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of the commodity. And it's not as if they raise prices every single month. And um, so you get these bumps, and there should be a cyclical, I'm sorry, seasonal adjustment against that. Um, but we didn't get it last year. We didn't get it this year. And we'll probably see deflation in the apparel CPI in, in you know, March, April, May, June, like that. What? When do we get inflation or well, more that, significant inflation? Well, significance is a different thing, but I think we're definitely— And I don't know what I mean by significant. Is it 2 percent? Is that significant? Is well, it three? I, I, think, I think significant would be 3 percent. I think yeah. that are we heading towards 2 percent and above 2 percent a year from now? Core inflation, yes, we are. Um, I think a lot of people just seem to continue to underplay the impact of 2015-16 and that slump. And so that last year was year one of a recovery in the goods, certainly in the goods part of the U.S. economy. And year one is always the best year in terms of wages and prices. This is year two. So wages and prices begin to catch up. In addition, you're getting this rebound at a time of tight labor markets, strong global growth. We've had a weak dollar for a while now, and with about a 12-month lag, so we're about on schedule now for goods prices to begin to increase. In fact, what we saw in the January numbers on a year-over-year basis Mm. is that the price of goods that we like to buy, 
appliances, things like that, are actually been in deflation. They're still in deflation, but much closer to zero than they were. And the people that we speak with in China, a lot of input prices that normally, like into TVs and computers and things like that, that normally drop every year when they, once a year, they come in, they set the price. Um, actually, there was no decrease in price this year. Well, but that's, so that, that, that's one of my really bugs me the most about this inflation number is the TV thing. Because the, according to the, uh, the, the, Here we go. the, as you call it, the survey, my TV got 40% better this year. Uh, and so the, the, or the price went down by 20%. So the price went up according to them, right? Or, you know, right. uh, it's usually 15, 20% a year, correct. But all the adjustments in the quality of my TV, the fact is the price of TVs is going down. Right. You buy, you buy a TV, it shows you what's on TV. It does a bunch of other stuff now, it didn't do it before, it's still a freaking TV, okay? You just bought a TV. You replaced your old TV with a new TV. You didn't get a new TV because this one streams Hulu. Somebody's pretty cranky on Valentine's Day, that's I, all I'm saying. Uh, but yeah, anyway. Well, it seems so. Um, well, no, but, but, but he brings up a good point. How do you explain that? Why. How do you explain that? Well, it's just simply electronics prices keep going down. And, and then you look at uh, the retail sales numbers, and you see that there was a 3% increase year over year in appliances, TVs, things like that. So you know that if there's a nominal 3% increase, again, a 15% decline, there was a lot of buying. Right? There's a lot of real buying of, the, of those types of things. And I think that when you... So look, just supply and demand? Yeah, it's well, supply and demand. It's technological advances. I mean, everybody knows your computer, your phone, things like that get you know marginally cheaper every year. So in terms of inflation... You don't, what, anticipate it, anticipate no, it going I, to 2%? Oh, no, I do. I think core inflation is on its way. I think that's why I said we've been here before. There's a January effect that's going to fade, but underneath that, the fade's not going to be as strong as last year. Core inflation and wages are going to continue to rise through the course of the year. And, of course, it, we're, uh, forgive me, we're at 2.1%, right, on... CPI year uh, over year. Year over year, but yeah. that's that's not the core. Not not core, right? That's with that's with just the below, uh, right, just below it. Which which so core inflation's up towards two percent, maybe even above a, a year from now, on a year over year basis. Uh, but the point you're making about gasoline is an interesting one because one of the things that we've seen in the fourth quarter is that the saving rate has gone down, mm. and it's gone down as the price of gasoline has gone. Up. So consumers need a wage increase. Now, the flow of business activity suggests, uh, and the tightness of labor markets suggests that we will see wage increases this month. People, most people, are going to get some kind of bump up in their uh, wages. So a little bit more money to spend and more inflation. All right, we're going to leave it there. Nice to see you again. Same here. He's a grandpa too, by the way, Corey. Just Good work. <laughs> lots to celebrate. Oh, you bet it is. The <laughs> lots, best job. Lots to celebrate this Valentine's Day. Steve Blitz, Chief U.S. Economist at T.S. Lombard. I'm the quirky girl in an offbeat world. So some people that you might consider quirky, Albert Einstein, Benjamin Franklin, Elon Musk, Marie Curie. 
Thomas Edison, even Steve Jobs, they have something in common. They also have many differences. And that is the subject of a new book. It's called Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who change the world. Melissa Schilling, uh, she wrote the book. Melissa Schilling is professor of management and organizations at NYU Stern School of Business with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I said to you when you walked in, what a cool idea for a book. Just quickly, just kind of summarize how you came to do this. Ah, I've been teaching and researching innovation for over 20 years. And in around 2010, when Steve Jobs was looking noticeably thin, a lot of my students started asking me, what's going to happen? Is the innovation in him himself? Is it some sort of magic that's going to disappear if we lose him? Or is it in the routines and structure embedded in the firm? Can a successor have it? And what they were fundamentally asking is, how can I be like Steve Jobs? And then mm. I realized we didn't really have the answers to that question. So I started studying Steve Jobs really intensely. And then pretty soon I noticed that he had some interesting commonalities with Dean Kamen, who was another very interesting innovator. And that inspired me to do a multiple case study research project. Can anybody be a Steve Jobs or a Dean Kamen? Can can I, you know, spend hours and hours like I could maybe practicing the violin and maybe become pretty good at it? Yes. Can, and I, can I do that and become an innovator? <laughs> so I'm going to say yes and no. One of the really cool things about what I found studying these people is that a lot of them had sort of unique and inimitable traits, but there was a mechanism that linked that trait up to innovation, and sometimes we can tap that mechanism without having the trait. So there are definitely lots of things we can learn about how to nurture the breakthrough innovation potential in us all. Mm. Now, the one thing I'll say that all the people I studied had that, that is difficult to emulate is they were all extremely intelligent, and we're not all extremely intelligent. Yeah, I'm but, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're right. There's something about, I, I've felt anybody who's just really kind of out there it's they're in a different world. Yeah, literally, actually. So yeah. You, yeah, you never say that as a compliment when you talk about me, Carol. <laughs> so how does one? You know, I've interviewed Dean Cameron, I've interviewed Steve Jobs, I've interviewed uh, what is it? Um, Benjamin Franklin. I have not interviewed Benjamin Franklin. Thank you very much, Carol. I'm not that old. <laughs> um, what, what is it about? Uh, how, how do you study these people? Like, what is the key? Because there's a lot of written about these people right, yeah. that just isn't right or that surmises right. a lot. I'll, I'll throw Elon Musk into that, right? Who, people will write a lot of things they think is true or they don't actually do the work to figure out what was really going on behind the scenes. So how do you do that work? Yeah. I mean, one of the keys is that I set up selection criteria up front that made it so that I was only going to study people about whom a lot had been written by multiple different biographers so that, first of all, you're not overly reliant on any one person's perspective. Right. And also, I only did people where there was a lot of firsthand accounts. I wanted uh, quotes from the innovators themselves, quotes yeah. from their family Good. members, from their friends. And there's a lot of that material in the book. So, you know, my philosophy is you don't have to believe me. Read what they said and draw your own <laughs> conclusions. Well, what kind of conclusions did you draw? You know, it was amazing how much they had in common and how much we can learn from it. And one of the things that stood out probably most poignantly is how socially detached a lot of them felt. They felt disconnected from the social world around them, or they felt like the rules didn't belong uh, apply to them. So you see this in Steve Jobs' behavior a lot, right? He didn't put license plate on his car. He didn't shower. He would stare at people intensely without blinking. Because he really wouldn't put a license plate on his car. I used to see, he used to park <laughs> at the Mac events that they have in San Francisco, and it would just have like a barcode 
on the back where the license plate was supposed to be. Yeah. He just didn't think that those rules applied to him. But that actually plays a big part in his ability to reject norms and challenge assumptions and come up with heterodox ideas, to come up with really creative, original ideas. Heterodox? Uh, heterodox means non, you know, the opposite of orthodox. Sorry, shouldn't use, shouldn't <laughs> no, use sorry, words like I, that. I told you he wasn't that smart. <laughs> I, I went to NYU. I didn't tell you I actually finished. Okay. No. <laughs> okay, I might have finished. Uh, but no, but it's really... It's really fascinating, right? Because we often live in a culture, too, that that um, rewards people who fit in and follow yeah. the system. And these are people who didn't. They didn't fit in. And, you know, at some point, most of them decided that became part of their identity. And they didn't try to fit in anymore. And that's part of why they were able to persist with ideas, even in the face of criticism or failure. Because they decided, well, I don't belong. And I, I don't care that I don't belong. I believe in this. Uh and that was also connected to another trait that almost all of them shared, with the exception of Thomas Edison, is that they were keenly idealistic. And if you have studied mm. Musk very much or came That's who in, I thought of, Elon yeah, or, or Dean. Just yeah. searingly idealistic, right? They're pursuing a cause that is bigger than themselves, that they see as intrinsically noble, and it provides this intense motivation for them that keeps them focused, and it also provides an ego defense for them that makes them resilient, because they don't care what you think of them. Elon Musk does not care whether you think he's got the right idea about going to Mars or not because he thinks I, it's more important ask, ask he's blocked me on Twitter because he doesn't like the way that I've reported on his company so I think he does care but we'll have to have the conversation another time what a fascinating uh, conversation Come back. Melissa, thank you Melissa Schilling professor of management at NYU my alma mater book's called Quirky nacho cheese sauce Mexican spices they don't want these coming out who's they the burger people they they those are the quirky ads we've been hearing from Taco Bell lately. You may see that one in the Super Bowl. Um, a really interesting way to sell some French fries and some tacos. But that CEO who came up with that idea, or at least a, a green lighted that idea, is gone. Uh, on to Chipotle. Alyssa Patton joined us right now, Bloomberg News Consumer Reporter, as well as Stephen Anderson, a senior uh, restaurant analyst with Maxim Group. Uh, with this interesting hire, Leslie, uh, give us uh, the basics on the news here. Who's, who got hired and what's he known for? So Chipotle yesterday just announced their new CEO. They had uh, announced prior that they were going to be, uh, Steve Ells was going to be stepping down and they were looking for someone. But yesterday we got the news that the Taco Bell CEO, uh, of all people, will be taking over on March 5th. Well, he knows a lot about tacos and things, right? That's true. I guess he has the Mexican-themed restaurant down. Well, you know, I'm curious, um, Stephen Anderson, uh, you guys do advisory work and consulting work. When you look at the restaurant space specifically, is this a smart move? Because Tesla, Tesla, forgive me, I don't know where that came from, um, Taco Bell and Chipotle, similar food, but it's, it's very different companies and, and approaches. That's correct. There are two different approaches. Taco Bell uh, has taken a more traditional quick service approach uh, to Mexican cuisines, whereas Chipotle has started taking a, maybe a little bit slightly more upscale uh, push uh, toward a more fast casual approach. Uh, that being said, though, I think uh, both uh, in their time have benefited from being uh, 
lifestyle brands, and there's and more recently, I think uh, Taco Bell has been more successful in pushing that. Uh, Chipotle, as you well know, uh, has been recovering from. Its wait, a minute, wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Lifestyle <laughs> brand? <laughs> I'm glad you dude. Yeah. Chanel is a lifestyle brand. <laughs> Under Armour is well, uh, a lifestyle ask brand. Any millennial, ask anyone in Generation Z. Uh, it's the uh, part of the culture that's uh, live moss. It's about uh, being up uh, all hours and being able to uh, grab any hour of the any time around the clock and grabbing Taco Bell. That's, uh, That's just called convenience, isn't it? Leslie Patton, lifestyle brand? <laughs> I know. It's a little bit of the marketing jargon from the company, but at the same time, I mean, Steve's right. They, they, they have been able to successfully market this to that young crowd, and not just like the young dude bro, late night munchy people. It's like people in high school Careful, that are careful. I'm sitting right here. <laughs> people, people in high school and people, you know, in college who are Instagramming this stuff now. So, it, it is, and is that really what he's good at, uh, Stephen? Is, is is he known for really getting that that voice? Well, he has, he's been uh, with uh, Yum Brands uh, since uh, 2005, and even before he had joined Taco Bell in 2011, he had been uh, with. Uh, Pizza Hut and trying to push with their online sales, uh, certainly before Domino's became dominant in that space. Uh, Pizza Hut was an early adopter of online uh, of online uh, mar- uh, commerce, and, uh, and I think this is something that uh, is not just the marketing; it's just the ad- early adoption of technology. I think it's really uh, critical in the industry today. I think uh, that uh, Chipotle uh, may have fallen behind a little bit in that regard, but uh, I think uh, with the hiring Mr. Nickel, I think that that gets them back on track. You know what's fascinating? I was watching that commercial, um, you know, that's like a mini movie, um, you know, for Taco Bell. And I guess they were, what was it? The the French fries, the nacho right. fries that they were unveiling. It That strategy, that marketing strategy, I, I spent a lot of time with Mark Crumpacker, who was the chief, I think, uh, brand officer, marketing officer at Chipotle. I mean, they created a little mini series, you know, that was put out on a streaming service, you know, that was trying to get the message across about. So they've been of, there before. Yeah, like it, it, there, it was interesting to see kind of that similarity. So talk to us about, you know, what changes, what will be the same, Leslie Patton, for Chipotle going forward? Well, it's hard to say for sure, but I think there could be a little bit of a mashup going on. I mean, Chipotle has said that they're going to continue to kind of stick to their roots of this whole food with integrity thing. That that being said, we have this kind of edgy marketing guy coming in who's who's for sure looking to shake things up and change things. I mean, he kind of has to to get to get the ball rolling again for them. But how do they? This was a company that was so much, you know, Steve L's. His particulars, Steve Ells, of course, the co-founder of Chipotle, you know, in terms of being picky about where the food was coming from and things were never frozen and he worked with suppliers and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, Leslie, will that change going forward? I think the company is going to keep doing that stuff, but they're just maybe not going to shout as loudly about that. And instead, right now, maybe they're going to talk about some other stuff. Maybe they're going to talk about new menu items, and they're going to talk about a new mobile app and and things like that instead of talking about pasture-raised hogs. I I guess what you're saying is, 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 is Steve, let me ping-pong between you guys, is is – is, is, it's about the message, not the content right now for, for Chipotle. Is that what, sort of what we're saying here? Is it's, it, it's great that your rices are, are organically grown or whatever, but, but really we, we've got to 
it's about the messaging for this business, not messaging around the product, but messaging for around the demographic or, or whatever, a psychographic. Well, I think that that's the first order of business is to try to refocus uh, the uh, center of uh, what Chipotle stands for, and uh, you know, it's, it's re- reconnecting with the millennial, the core millennial demographic. Uh, I think the uh, most uh, imminent opportunity for them is not breakfast. I know some in the investor community think that could be next, uh, which is, is which was a uh, one of Mr. Nichols' initiatives, but I don't think it's uh, right for Chipotle right now. But we do think that. Uh, you know, maybe expanding uh, the day parts, you know, to the lower traffic periods, like late afternoon or late evening, uh, you know, certainly hours that Chipotle is open and maybe uh, having new products like nachos or frozen uh, uh, beverages uh, that can uh, really uh, have gain incremental customers. And that's something that uh, I think uh, that can be done in short order. Stephen, I mean, when, I'm Chipo- hungry. <laughs> when Chipotle first came out, though, you know, they were kind of, they really did lead the way in terms of fast casual. Um, now, now there's a lot more competition. There's a lot more offerings and choices out there. Will it ever be what it was going forward? Well, I would say that the, the uh, brand leadership is, you know, some would be something that's very tough to crack. There's a lot of new competitors to be sure, but no, no one, uh, very only one other competitor in the space, uh, that being Panera, uh, has uh, provided that uh, pro- that infiltration of the U.S. market with more than 2,000 locations, and I do think that uh, Chipotle can easily add another 1,000 uh, to 1,200 locations uh, before I would say they're saturated in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, uh, and finally, there's the issue of just providing food safely, which Mm -hmm. seems to be Mm -hmm. the biggest issue there, uh, Leslie, for Chipotle. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you can talk about, you know, organically grown stuff, or you can talk about the locality of your suppliers or chickens that have been raised well. But but ultimately, people don't care about that right now. They want to eat safe food, and they want exciting experiences. Well, um, we hope that they get that when they go to Chipotle. Uh, I keep hearing great things. Carol, do you know I've actually never been? You should try it. It's not that I'm so fancy. Live I just, a little, you know, Corey Johnson. Live on the edge. Get out of the, uh, you know. I don't know if that's the edge leave. I want. <laughs> it's good. And I remember. I remember when one, one of your earlier, too. one of your earlier work husbands said, Dude, "Let's go to Chipotle today." There's no lines, said Matt Miller. There's no <laughs> lines. They just had an E. coli scare. Sure. Best time ever. It's never been so clean. Leslie Patton, thank you very much from Bloomberg. Stephen Anderson from uh, Maxim Group. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. We have Sandeep Bagat with us, Chief Investment Officer at Whittier Trust. $13 billion in assets under management. Joining us uh, on the phone from Pasadena, California. Sandeep, nice to have you here uh, on this Wednesday. It's been an interesting 2018 already, but I've seen this movie before. Go back to 2016. I saw a lot of selling in January. And then we start to see um, certainly the equity markets uh, move to the upside. Where do you see things going from here? 
Carol, we just didn't see enough fundamental change last week to warrant a sell-off of that magnitude or ferocity, for that matter. Actually, the fundamentals in 2018 are a lot better right now. Let's take a look at the things that didn't change last week. The growth story is intact. We have synchronized global growth, strong earnings growth, fiscal stimulus, deregulation. We did have one change. We saw a whiff of inflation and modestly higher rates, but we don't believe that this is enough to signal the end of the cycle. So a lot of that selling was deleveraging and de-risking, but not fundamental in nature. Well, so let's talk about that. The ferocity, I, I, I like that phrase about it because it really was unprecedented. Um, and, I, you know, with maybe the exception of the flash crash or the fat finger of flash crash of, what was it, 2009, which was very good to me because I was buying like crazy during those 20 minutes back before I had this job. But I wonder, uh-huh. you know, what you think led to that? Because it really was, there was an hour there where it was just breathtaking. Yeah, let's let's reflect on this, right? We had unprecedented low volatility. Investors became complacent. And when you have a fixed risk budget uh, and volatility is low, you can afford to leverage up. Then volatility spikes all of a sudden, and you have this forced selling, this liquidation of these leveraged right. positions. But it wasn't, but it wasn't this, just that. I, I get that if it was the VIX. I get it if it was XIV. I get it if it was the other um, uh, levered uh, ETNs. But it was everything. It was everything. And look, this just, I think, sends a signal to policymakers and regulators. We perhaps ought to revisit market microstructure in light of how big the hedge fund community has become, the buy side has become, the limits of liquidity that can be provided by the market, because this is outright scary, right? Think Mm. of the individual investor when the Dow drops 500 points in 10 minutes. So we need a specialist Uh, system to come back? Because the specialists, obviously, in the New York Stock Exchange aren't stepping in like they did, you know, in in decades past. Yeah. uh, it, it, It really is you know, the proliferation of these exotic products. We have leveraged instruments in ETF space now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'm not talking just volatility products, right? You have long-only directional equity products that have significant leverage built into them. Uh, This is just not good for investor sentiment or psychology. And the, the sad or maybe an even amusing part is that there was nothing fundamental to justify that. No, that's we had these. It's interesting that you mentioned that because actually, I think Bloomberg Intelligence has put together kind of a ranking on some of the ETF products, um, exchange traded products that are out there, and, and like you say, some of them are just betting on how many multiple times, you know, increases in something like the Nasdaq or so on and so forth. So they seem maybe harmless, but you're right. When leverage comes into the equation, <laughs> and we've seen this movie before too, right? I mean, that's when things can get tricky. Yes, and uh, in that instance, it becomes indiscriminate. It is almost a forced or a mechanical liquidation. Leverage is wonderful on the way up. It magnifies returns to the upside, but, man, it can be devastating. And what it takes away from the individual investor is the option of the buy-hold strategy. When you have this forced liquidation because of a margin call, you have to get out at that point just to meet that regulatory requirement at very adverse prices. You cannot ride the storm out. You have to get out at that point, and right. oftentimes it ends up being at the low. So it's just very damaging and destructive to wealth, uh, and I think a topic for, for policy discussions. So um, 
That's not going to happen in this environment, though, is it? I mean, we, with this administration and their – no, seriously, this administration and their notion that every kind of protection, including protections for investors, is just a regulation and needs to be gotten rid of? Uh, I'm not going to comment on, you know, the political environment and what may or may not be feasible. Uh, but it is just – you know, I just find it so ironic that today – Remember, this whole episode began 10 days ago with a stronger-than-expected wage inflation report. And today, on a day when we had yet another strong inflation report, what do you have in the markets? You have this big up day, yeah. uh, rendering all of that somewhat kind of meaningless and uh, you know, very hard to make sense of. All right, but you've got to make sense of the market. You've got to make investment choices and decisions and allocations. So having said that, what are you banking on for at least the next year or 18 months? So, so let's put this in context, right? <clears throat> for the longest time, we've been trying to stimulate the economy so that it can reach, what do we call it, uh, escape velocity. It can become self-sustaining. And <clears throat> we are finally here. We have healthy above-trend growth. The inevitable consequence of such growth is this modest inflation and slightly higher interest rates. But it's, to yeah. put this in context, this is actually a good development. For the longest time, we wanted the patient off of life support. We finally have a healthy patient. It's reason to celebrate and not yeah. despair. We're actually constructive on the market. Yeah. Uh, valuations have improved through the sell-off. Right. And we don't see this signaling the end of the cycle at all. This is a revival of growth. Right. Uh, in many ways, we're getting what a lot of people, you know, were asking for in terms of some of this correction and getting valuations back to normal. Um, Sandeep, thank you so much for your thoughts today. Sandeep Bagat, Chief Investment Officer at Whittier Trust, $13 billion in assets under management on the phone from Pasadena. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. called Movers and Shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. All right, time to do some shaking on this Valentine's Day. Let's take a look at the movers in the market. S&P 500, let's take a look at the big picture. Uh, among the names in the S&P, 408 higher today, 95 lower, two unchanged. Uh, if I may, I want to talk about Chipotle again. I know Charlie mentioned it, but I think it's worth noting because we know this stock has been beaten up over the last couple of years, down 23% in 2017 down almost 22% in 2016, down 30% in 2015. Concerns about the food and problems there. Uh, but a different tone today. You have that stock uh, rallying, as Charlie mentioned, up about 15%, up 38 bucks to $289.91 a share. Stock uh, still little changed. How about that? With that rally still almost unchanged uh, on the year, Stock uh, and the company, Chipotle Mexican Grill, have has a new uh, CEO in place. And this is the former uh, CEO of uh, Taco Bell, now Brian Nickel. He ran Taco Bell for three years, met sweet success, if you will, getting crowds with uh, different dish, dishes such as uh, Doritos, Locos Tacos, and AM Crunch Wraps. There you have it. But anyway, so we'll see what he can do with Chipotle Mexican Grill. Um, some expectations, certainly among investors, are high. Chipotle Mexican Grill is the number one gainer in the S&P 500 today. So, chew on that. Well, 
Ah, I see what you did with the chew and the food nice, and the right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, something. Know. You know what I've been working on, right? Yeah, you've been all over fossil. I've been all over fossil. The stock is up eighty nine percent today, and it, it it was up to start the day. Well, I was actually down a little bit. Then there's this just incredible rally. Uh, fossil shares cl- closing the day at seventy nine dollars and twelve cents. Uh, massive short interest, as Dave Wilson pointed out earlier in the show, forty four percent short interest. So a rise in the stock forces some people whose risk parameters have been exhausted who are on the short side uh, to get out of the way, even though the stock's come down from about $120 a share back in 2014 to, as I mentioned, uh, 17 Well, it looks, actually looks like, if I refresh here, 1697 uh, for the close today. Nonetheless, a fantastic move in the stock. So I've been really kind of pulling apart the numbers, and I've been tweeting about it. You can see some of those tweets in at Corey TV. Uh, I've actually, my tweets are sort of trolling. I'm hoping some of the other short tellers will come out and tell me why they're, <laughs> they're short this thing. So I just started looking at those basic financials this morning reading the press release and creating a little model for it. And boy, it's got $425 million in debt. The company lost, so it's got about a half a billion dollars in debt. It lost a half a billion dollars last year. That's not good. No, no. Free cash flow in rapid decline for this company. Free cash flow that had been uh, annual free cash flow up over $300 million was less than $120 million last year. So free cash flow falling and falling faster and faster. Uh, the, the big surprise, the reason the stock was up is because they announced they, announced they sold so many smartwatches. And isn't that great? 14% of watch sales they called wearables. And wait a minute. <laughs> Aren't all watches wearables? Even a pocket watch <laughs> oh, is a wearable. Come on. Okay. Wearables was a big part of what they did in the quarter. Yeah. Uh, and, and so everyone said, oh, they're surprised. They sold more wearables. Well, gross margins went down. Uh, revenues went down. Operating margins went down. Free cash went down. If you sell more of something that sounds better but is actually worse, is that a good thing? The stock market certainly thought so today. But uh, I think this is a name I'm going to start to keep an eye on because something's weird here. Welcome to Corey's rant. Oh, I'm just saying. That wasn't a rant. That was mansplaining. Wait, that wasn't mansplaining. That was news is news reporting ish. It's actually great tweets. I love when you do this. When you start digging into this stuff, it's the best. Best Corey, when you do this. Grading <laughs> uh, on a scale. Let's talk about Biogen. It's the number one decliner in the S and P 500, down 6.6 percent. Biogen uh, plunging after the company said it was making changes to a trial of an Alzheimer's disease drug after a long list of rival drugs failed. Uh, presentation to investors today, Biogen said it would add about 500 more patients to its studies of aducanumab. I can never, sp- I, can, I don't know. These drug names always kill me. Anyway, it's in the final stages of testing. It was expected to produce full results uh, later on this year. And uh, this drug is one of the uh, the last remaining kind of late stage Alzheimer drugs still in testing. So uh, I guess high hopes, um, but maybe some disappointment today. And Biogen, as I mentioned, down. 6.6%. And let me really quickly uh, just talk about the VIX today. You know, it's been the focal point of trading, I think, across all of Wall Street. Remember, it hit uh, 37 on Monday last week uh, after hanging out below 10 for, for weeks upon end. Um, VIX down a lot today, down a 23% to 19.21. First time the VIX, of course, it broke 20 uh, in a whole week, 19.3%. However, still higher than it had been uh, for, for uh, years uh, until last Monday. All right, good to know. Hey, quick headline I just want to mention, popular or popular to buy Wells Fargo Puerto Rico unit for about $1.7 billion. So that's just crossing the Bloomberg as we speak. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. That is Dave Wilson's gift to his beloved. Respect. That's what it's all about. You know who... So cool. uh, 
deserves respect today? Well, the stock of the day, and that would be Regional Management. They operate a consumer finance chain called Regional Finance. The company provides personal loans across nine states in the southern half of the U.S., uh, spanning Virginia to New Mexico. Regional Management was founded in 1987 and went public in March 2012. The ticker is RM. Uh, the company shares more than doubled through January 2014. They gave back the entire gain in about three months as the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau looked into the industry. Uh, in the past 18 months or so, regional management rebounded. Today, the stock came within about 7% of its record after the company released results for the fourth quarter. Earnings beat analyst average estimate in a Bloomberg survey by the most since the company went public. Uh, regional management had a gain from U.S. tax law changes as opposed to the losses seen at other financial companies. Uh, regional management's results lifted the shares to their biggest daily gain ever as they rose 23% to $34.01. And along the way, the stock set a four-year high by reaching $34.24. Wow. That's a lot. A lot yes, it is. Too. That's a lot. You think she's like going to take this the wrong way, Dave? Is she listening to the show right now? Is she going to take this the wrong way when you're demanding respect with your card? No, she's going to love it. I mean, everyone loves Aretha, I hope. That's not All right. to love. Just All looking right. out for you. Dave Wilson, our stock editor. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV. 